It's all the files of the whole park. It tells her everything. Sir, he's uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. Tracking hacking groups like APT28, Charming Kitten, or Equation Group has become a booming business. Dozens of so-called threat intelligence companies keep tabs on them and sell subscriptions to feeds where they provide customers with up-to-date information on what the most advanced cyber criminals and government hackers are up to. One of the companies with perhaps the best visibility and data, called telemetry in infosec speak, is none other than Google. The internet giant has more than 1.5 billion active users on Gmail, more than 1 billion people who use Chrome, and more than 2 billion of their Android phones are floating around the world. Today, we talk to the person whose job it is to find hackers in that giant, like really, really, really giant haystack. Shane Huntley is the director of Threat Analysis Group, also known as TAG at Google. TAG is essentially Google's hacker hunting team. They are the ones tasked with monitoring Google's networks for criminal and government hackers. Okay, so tell me what it is exactly you do with Google. So my job title is I'm the director of the Threat Analysis Group, uh, which is part of Google Security. Um, and Threat Analysis Group is something the company formed about nine years ago to deal with serious and government threats against Google and our users. So I run the team that specifically looks at trying to understand all the threats out there that are are of threats to us, our users, how we can detect them, how we can prevent them, how we can disrupt them to keep our users safe. Um, the main goal is that there is a lot more threats out there, you know, APT and other threats that suddenly a big company like Google really needs to defend against. So we're the team that does that. So I've definitely had friends before who have gotten some of these emails from Google where they say stuff like, your account has been attacked by a nation state actor and, you know, you need to take these types of responses to it. How are you so sure when you send an email like that where you say this is a nation state actor? Because it, it, it occurred to me that that seems like a pretty strong thing to send to somebody. Um, yeah, it is. And it was sort of like quite an out there idea. I was kind of the person that came up with this and pushed this through. And there was a lot of skepticism that we should even do this in the first place. But we've been doing it for quite a while now. And it seems to have a good effect. So one slight clarification is we never actually send that out via email. We actually send it via, a, you know, a warning or alert directly in the browser because we don't want people to copy this as an email. So you should actually see it in the browser itself or as like a pop-up instead of actually an email. But what, what that warning indicates, and it comes from our team, is that, you know, we've seen something, whether it's phishing, whether it's malware or some other behavior, that we're pretty confident that, you know, matches what we understand to be the sort of techniques or specific indicators associated with a government-backed threat actor, one of the, you know, 200 different threat actors we track in some way. And because of that, we believe that that's a special message you should get that it's not right for us to sit on that and not let you know. So we can't tell you all the details, but we want to tell people that, you know, you really should think about this. And we don't know exactly what action you should take in most cases. Like we give you some suggestions, but it really depends on who you are. 
But the fact that you're being targeted, some people, wow, this is not a surprise at all. Some people, this is a big surprise and they might need to change things in their life. So we really try and provide that information. But as you said, there's still the possibility of false positives, especially if it's a security researcher doing research into these areas. But we're pretty confident we can tell the difference between what looks like government threat actor work and what looks like, say, crimeware or other sorts of attacks. Though you might want to get into the it's starting to blend those lines a little bit as the years go on. Okay, so do you send that alert when there's an attempt or when they're actually hacked? Attempt. So it's a sign of targeting, not a sign of compromise. It's compromise. We immediately, like, you know, take all those actions, help secure the account, force password change, those things. But this is in addition to that when we've seen some form of attempt that about once a month or so, we actually let everybody know that we've seen some attempt against that sort of information to let them know they're targeted. And this ends up being about 4,000 users a month across all of uh, Gmail and Google services. So, you know, state-sponsored attacks are, you know, somewhat rare compared to other big things, but it's still a fair volume, I think, compared to what some people would imagine it to be. Okay, when it comes to these state actors, what types of people are they normally targeting? Is it, say, journalists? I think it runs the gamut. I think there's, you know, governments these days, it's espionage, both sort of for their local security services, also for their, you know, national security services. So we see a wide range of what the different threat groups go after. Some are going after people because it's part of their like espionage mission. So it might be going after like high level government officials. Some people are going after journalists or activists that are speaking out against the government. So it's going after individuals, but it really runs quite the gamut of, and pretty much anybody who's interested of interest or has information that's valuable to one of these state-sponsored intelligence services may get targeted. So it's a, a much wider range of society than people first imagine. And we have to do sort of different things for different users. So sometimes the advice that you'd give to, say, a democracy activist in Iran would be quite different to, say, somebody who worked in, you know, one of the major political parties in the US. They're quite different demographics, but they may be targeting by either the same or slightly different threat actors. And where where are these attacks being born from? I'm sure you have an idea. Um, I think the big kind of growth is that all over the world on the whole is that, you know, most nations of any sort of size or sophistication now are actually having some form of hacking program that we consider part of this. And we don't discriminate. We're not saying we don't just warn about somebody coming from Russia. We don't warn about just somebody coming from North Korea. Every month we actually take the full range of everything we've seen. Um, and we really are like, you know, sometimes we're warning people in country A that they're being targeted by country B. At the same time, we're warning people in country B they're being targeted by country A. We are Our kind of goal is to really warn and protect all our users against all state-sponsored attacks. That said, a few years ago, I mean, Motherboard, we published a story, and it was on a report that was shared with us called Peering into the Aquarium. And it was a reference to the name of GRU's headquarters in, in Moscow. Can you tell me more about that? Uh, yeah, I do believe my name is on that paper. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, that is a paper we wrote, and I'd say that we do look at all the threat actors out there. And, you know, I think there's nobody who's working in threat intel that isn't looking at Russia and their attacks in some way. And, of course, every major power, including Russia, is a player in terms of doing attacks against, you know, people on the Internet. So definitely a threat actor we take seriously and one we've looked at. So there's no discrimination is what I'm hearing. Would that also include the United States targeting different people? Yes, I think... 
we definitely do not like give a free pass to anybody to hack our users. We have our defenses. There's no, um, we are looking to, you know, warn anybody we see being targeted by phishing or malware um, and try and be as neutral as possible about this. So are you saying sort of the trends in the in the global cybersecurity hacking space right now is that a lot of these, you know, tools and agencies are proliferating? Like, let's say, you know, 10 years ago, you would have had kind of the big three operators, a big four or five or six, and now you're looking at a whole landscape of 45 different nations. Or is it, you know, is it 120? Yes, it, I think you got it exactly right. The proliferation is definitely there, and there's a number of factors driving it. One, just people are seeing this as more effective, so they're investing capabilities locally. There's also this market from providers that, you know, a couple of hundred thousand dollars will get you pretty serious toolkits from some of the, you know, providers out there that are selling to a range of different countries in terms of to build their hacking capability. The other thing that we're really seeing is that just the tooling off the shelf or what you can download off the internet to do these sort of attacks is really becoming easy. That, you know, some of the tools that are being used by penetration testers or by security professionals are also being able to easily used by government-backed attackers in order to, like, go after people. So you'll see some tool like, you know, PowerShell Empire, uh, which is like a you know a, a public hacking tool. I think you can download it off GitHub or some other site. And we're seeing that used by a range of different nations in their attacks. Similarly for like a phishing platform like Evil Jinx, again, freely available on GitHub and quite well written, used by penetration testers, but also used by serious actors. And that sort of mixing of things actually does make detection harder and working out what's what, but also makes it a very easy game for any nation to get into. If you're a even a very small nation and you have a very small intelligence budget, like really the cost of entry here is like hire a couple of university students and get them to download some stuff off the internet and they can start phishing people or hacking people where if they wanted to get into like running human operations overseas or building spy satellites, that would be serious amounts of money. Like hacking is like really the most approachable way for any country to do espionage. And I think everyone's learned that. And have you seen some really surprising countries get into the game in that way? Yeah, we have. And I think we've also just seen really surprising sort of small parts of countries as well. Like you'll see, you know, something down to some like really local police, like local police or local security services, like somewhere it's like almost a, down to the city level in times that people started to use these capabilities against local criminals or local threats or local activists that it doesn't need to be, you know, a national capability, but can be down to all the way down to like sub-regions or even really small countries can do the basics of this. I mean, it's not just developing nations either, because, uh, you know, you look at something like the hacking team revelations that came out, there was university campus cops buying those, those capabilities in the United States. Absolutely. And that's the biggest differences, like, between, like, actors these days is more about the intent rather than the tools. The tools can be used in all sorts of different ways that even seeing people going after, like, domestic abuse or local people, we see, like, going after members of like an abusive relationship going after a spouse, for instance, we've actually seen some of the same sort of hacking tools being used as being used by nation states. The, you know, this is a technique to gain access to people's information and it can be used for all sorts of different purposes. Now, when it comes to sort of this proliferation of, of intelligence agencies using these capabilities, there's also been a proliferation of threat intelligence companies coming out with the latest report saying this person's done this or naming something 
you know, some group a funky name, but everyone knows what it is. Something like, you know, Fancy Bear, for example. Do you ever look at those and think to yourself, no, we've been looking at the same group? Yeah, I think that's pretty much like, you know, I, I'm, I, I run what I think is one of the one of the better threat teams around the world. And we definitely talk to counterparts in both the commercial industry, also with like the other major players, such as like my counterparts and the other major large companies. And on the whole, we're seeing different parts of the same picture. It's like that old parable of the elephant of people looking at different parts. Some people are seeing the tail, some people are starting to see the trunk. But I think most of us in the world are starting to converge on a reasonable understanding about what's going on out there. Um, I think it is interesting that, you know, the the branding and the kind of, you know, commercialization of this, I think is, a, you know, both a force for good and a force for bad in this world that the, you know, people do respond to motivations, both attackers and defenders. So, you know, the attackers, are, you know, go to where they can get whatever their goals are, but the defenders, security industry, everyone else is trying to work out, you know, how do we turn this into a product? And there's like different variants of this in terms of the, you know, is a security company, is their goal to make you secure or is it their goal to make you afraid so you buy more of their products? So, and probably a little bit of both. So trying to balance those motivations is, and also the kind of need for PR, the need for people to get out there means that a lot more people are publishing a lot more stuff, which has the real good side that we have a lot more information sharing but the downside is that sometimes it does make it harder to track things as people immediately chasing the publicity and the, the new hot thing versus the what can we do to really think about disrupting this act. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I mean, Google has one of the better threat analysis teams because you also have one of the biggest data sets. I mean, Google must be attacked more times by nation states than almost anywhere else in the world. I don't know about the attack statistics, but I definitely say that we definitely do get a lot of visibility because we have so many users. And because we have so many users, as I said, like, you know, a a user being targeted by state-sponsored attacks is not like something rare for us. It happens 4,000 times a month. So that does allow us to see the bigger picture. Um, I also think I'm very lucky in the team that we have a lot of technology to draw upon as well, that there's a lot of in this sort of analysis world, a lot of it's about actually understanding the data. So there's a lot of big data problems, big processing problems. And if there's one thing that Google, you know, has is the ability to process large amounts of data. So about half my team are actually like engineers building like large scale systems. So we can sift through, you know, petabytes of malware, or we can like deploy things directly to do protections into Gmail. And that's the other thing I really like about the team is that, you know, we're not just producing some report to post to a website you know, 95% of like our intelligence or more is directly going to the people who are defending Google and actually building the systems and defenses. So we're actually adjusting the defenses to try and actually block this in real time. And I think we're having quite a, a dent in this problem and making the attackers work a lot harder. So, I mean, in some ways, would you say that you're getting better information and are becoming better prepared to face these kinds of attacks than even say the US government? Because the da- the data you're getting seems to be I mean, just so expansive. 
I think everybody has their strengths, right? Like the US government has like their own advantages of like one, I think the US government does get attacked more than Google. Like, you know, government on government spying are still huge. Also, they have all those nice powers that intelligence agencies have and super secret things that the laws allow them to do that, you know, somebody in, you know, a corporate setting who very strictly, you know, plays things by the book isn't able to do. So I think we have different views, but I do think that, the days of, you know, the government having a monopoly on this understanding and it's all this like top secret understanding of what's going on that's so much better than anybody else in government has really disappeared. I think the kind of strong threat intel teams such as mine or some of the big commercial ones are definitely much more in an evil, even footing with the sort of like big five eyes governments or other governments that are looking at this sort of work. But they don't tell me everything they know as well, right? So uh, I, I don't know whether they have some magic knowledge that's not available to us, you know, people on the outside world. I, I got to ask, though, I mean, you must be pooling some of your employees in this threat intelligence group from those exact governments in the Five Eyes. I have a few, I have a few people that have come from that world, including myself, way back in the day, even like, like almost nine years ago now. Um, and it varies from company to company, but surprisingly, it's only a couple actually that have come from the government world. I actually pull a lot from a much wider range, actually. Now, what about the whole DNC hacking phenomena that happened? Did Google see any of those same actors in their servers going after their Gmail accounts? Uh, think about that one carefully. So, no, we did not have any large hack the same way DNC did. Um, along those lines. No, but did, um, did those same groups, did you see them actively trying to go after your networks or your Gmail accounts? I definitely, yeah, there definitely was targeting of users during the, you know, election campaign. And there's definitely, you know, public nature of this with regards to, you know, Gmail users that were targeted during their campaign and even leaks around them, which happened in the same time frame in 2016. And many people have, you know, tied the same threat actor to, the DNC hacks and also some of the leak operations. So it's all part of a like larger campaign that there was going on at that time in 2016, yes. So in terms of, I mean, you're the threat intelligence analysis group. Do you ever have any political fears of disclosing some of the things you find? Because obviously Google has commercial interests and threat intelligence is just completely, you know, open in terms of what you're finding. But, you know, you could upset nations. I've seen, you know, look at something like Citizen Lab. When they find something out about a, a certain country, you, there's, there's a political blowback. Is that something that your group faces as well? I think it's something that everybody has to think of to a certain degree. But I, I suppose the part of it's just being principled about how you approach this. Like our general role is, you know, not to, you know, take sides. We're not really that forward pushing in order to like push a political agenda. Our agenda is pretty clear here in the fact that we're trying to defend our systems and our users against all attackers. And I think... When we take that approach as opposed to a more activist approach like some of these other groups, I think that puts us in a better position. And I think it gives us a lot more to stand on in terms of the why we're doing these things, that we're not playing favourites, we're not picking sides, we're not trying to use this as some political measure because that's really what the company wants, right? This isn't our core business. Our core business is, you know, allowing people to use our services, to use the internet, and all the security attacks are actually getting in the way of that. So we just want to solve the problem to allow our users to be more secure. Because, I mean, I guess, you know, any, any broke, I mean, if the internet is broken, it's broken for everyone. 
Absolutely. And also if, if the trust in the internet is broken as well, it also just limits what people can do. Like all these attacks actually make it so people don't want to use the internet. They can't get the benefits because they're spending all their time having to worry about attacks or being worried about using their information. So, you know, we want people to be secure. We want people to get all the benefits of this technology and not have to spend their entire lives having to, you know, be constantly worried about threats, government backed or otherwise. And how about your, you know, Google's relationship with businesses in terms of disclosing what's going on if they're being particularly targeted? Is that something you do actively? I think it's similar to how we do it with consumers as well. Like definitely for our businesses um, on G Suite and other sort of products. And it's something we're expanding to do. We also do a lot of like engagement in the industry and like, you know, we definitely make the calls to different people when it's some, some sort of key attack. We definitely can't promise to give like white glove service to everybody on the planet. But when something's serious out there, we definitely do engage very strongly. One of the other things we've been doing more recently is like really looking for exploits out there in the wild as well. And we found that like found exploits in like, you know, some of our competitors, some of our competitors in terms of the somebody using a exploit against a Microsoft product or an Adobe product, are able to take that, work with the teams, push them to patch it, and then get these sort of turnaround to help them secure their products against active attacks and, and vice versa. If they see something being used against our products, we definitely expect that sort of, you know, them to provide the information to us and hold us to those same standards. In 2013, after the Snowden leaks, a lot of these big companies like Google, like the big telcos, et cetera, you know, a lot of people lost a lot of trust in what your company does and other companies do with data in terms of its, its relationship vis-a-vis governments. So when users are using this stuff and you're, you're collecting threat intelligence, et cetera, I mean, how, how can you sort of make people believe that Google has and your threat intelligence group has their best interests at heart and that, you know, in terms of government disclosure and their data, they're not going to see any, any, let's say, attacks on their privacy. To a certain degree, you have to work out who you trust and how they behave. Um, I do think the 2013 Snowden leaks were, you know, a, a huge event for us, for the whole industry and how everybody thought about technology and governments. Um, I do think what we do need to say is that, you know, we do have a pretty strong history of pushing back on the government, really trying to be independent. And we are an international company that tries to, you know, defend all our users. But also, we have to think about the range of threats here as well, that I think one of the downsides of the Snowden leaks is that it had everybody worried for a long time solely about um, NSA, for instance, not thinking, and I think in some ways, people like lost attention from some of the other big threat actors out there for a number of years. Um, and I think that actually happened through till 2016 with the election sort of interference accusations that now suddenly people are realizing that, yes, there is this wider range of threat actors out there beyond just worrying about what Edward Snowden published. Is there a group out there in particular that keeps you up at night in terms of APT teams? Good question. I think the group that would most keep me up at night is the one that I don't know about in terms of the, who is it? The the ones that I really know about, I feel that I'm really able to defend, but there's always that out there question. We haven't had a really big incident in a long time in, in core Google. And there's always that back of the mind of, 
is there some actor that's going to come for come for us that I don't know about? Some group, whether it is like you know highly paid mercenaries or some A team from some governments. You know, we do everything we can to look for them. We haven't seen the evidence, but there's always in the back of my mind that we have to be ready. And so we build our defenses to try and work out how to catch them if they're there or if they're not there. So, are you seeing any trends in terms of attacks by APTs out there on Gmail? If vis-a-vis like going after two-factor authentication, because back in 2016, it was phishing, automated phishing email attempts at Gmail. So, I mean, is there anything else you're seeing that's that's come out? Uh, I think there's a couple of trends. One is the, you know, more and more focus on mobile devices to a certain degree. So, trying to either trick or push users to install things on their phones or to, you know, try and exploit people's phones because that's becoming more of an attack vector. Um, the two-factor one, I think, is very important and very interesting that I think as more t- as more people use sort of like two-factor codes, like, you know, you know, send via SMS or send via an app, the serious attackers and even the sort of mid-level serious attackers are getting better at tricking users for their codes. Um, I think one of the most misunderstood things in security, even among security professionals, is the, you know, not all two-factor authentication is created equal. That, you know, if it's a six-digit code and you're entering it into a website, then the attacker can trick you for the six-digit code just as, just as much as they can trick you for a password. Um, but something like the, you know, FIDO security keys, YubiKey makes some of the more commonly used ones, that really sort of ties to the website, so it can't be fished. So that's the protection that really works. All two-factor authentication works against certain attacks, like, you know, it really protects you against your password being in a password dump or password reuse. But the kind of the code entering ones, I think, are being able to be stolen by more and more, you know, more serious attackers. And then that's the kind of the thing that worries me as well, that people think that the two-factor authentication is this magic bullet, sign up for it, you get the SMS message, and then you're totally unhackable. And that's certainly not the truth in 2019. And I suppose the other trend is the like just tying together, as I mentioned before, of the the mixing together of like the state sponsored other work of the world. Like seeing like, you know, North Korea spends more of its time trying to steal Bitcoin these days than it does trying to like get national intelligence from all we can tell. So seeing this sort of crossover of like it's hard to draw the lines both in the tooling and even in the what they're doing in terms of state sponsored and criminal actors these days, which kind of makes it hard for me to draw the line about where I should be putting my efforts. Great. Thank you so much. I definitely enjoyed speaking with you. No, it's been great talking to you. Yeah. And thanks for having me on. This week's episode was edited by Dean White and produced by Lorenzo Franceschi Bicherai. If you like the show, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or tell your friends about us. We'll be back with more next week. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.